The following content is derived from the preaching ministry of Ashland Avenue Baptist Church in Oldham County, Kentucky, and is reproduced here for the benefit of its members. We exist to treasure and spread a passion for the supremacy of Christ in all things for the joy of all peoples, and we pray that God's grace among us would spread beyond us to the benefit of anyone who happens to listen. For more information about our church, go to ashlandoc.org. Thanks for listening. Well, good morning. Please open up your Bibles this morning to the book of 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians. We're going to be this morning in chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, looking at truth-telling in an age of pragmatism. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. We're in between series right now. Um, And so we are looking forward to beginning a study through the book of Acts uh, here this summer. And so we're excited about that. And next Sunday is Father's Day. And so we will have a sermon uh, with with that in mind next week. But this week, I want to talk about something that I believe is very timely. And I'll explain why in just a moment. Um, but I see it right here, Paul dealing with some of the same things that we find ourselves dealing with today. And isn't it amazing how the God-breathed scriptures are always relevant? And I, and I find this, I have this experience so often where I'm reading the Bible and, and the Spirit just says, look, this is what you need to hear right now. This is what's happening in the world. This is what's happening in your life. And we find that here in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. So if you found that, I want to invite you to stand in reverence for the reading of God's Word. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, having this ministry, by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways, We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's Word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Let's pray. Father, I thank You so much for Your church. I thank You so much for the people gathered here, the body of Christ, to remind one another every single day that Jesus Christ reigns, that He has died to forgive us and reconcile us, that He will be returning, that we currently possess Your Spirit to guide us and guard us and persevere us. Lord, we thank You for these promises that we have in Jesus, and we thank You for the church that reminds us. Lord, I pray right now that You would take this time where Your Word is proclaimed. And Lord, I pray that You would speak to our hearts. Lord, I pray that You would plant the seed of Your Word deep within so that we would have fruit as a result. Lord, that is only possible if Your Spirit comes and speaks to us today. And Lord, we pray that that indeed is what would happen. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. We will do whatever we can to actually reach and impact as many people as we can. 
Now, I like that statement. I hope it resonates with you. We should be willing to do whatever we can to reach and impact as many people as we can. But I read that quote from a pastor in an article a couple of weeks ago, and it kind of changes it for me. You see, it was a pastor in Bradenton, Florida, and it was an article that was detailing his church's decision to invest $100,000 in holographic technology that enables him to beam himself three-dimensionally into nine different locations simultaneously so that when he preaches, he's in person at one place, but you see him, it looks like he's present in nine different places. And that is the context in which he said those words. We will do whatever we can to actually reach and impact as many people as we can. Later on in the article, he said that they are investing in this technology because he wants to make it more personal. Now, I want you to notice, church, that there is a whole list of important questions with huge theological implications that this pastor and his church seem to not be asking at all. And I thought about some of those this week. Here's a few of the questions that I would need to ask in this context. Number one, is there a reason that God has limited human bodies so that we cannot be physically present in more than one location at one given time? Probably. Is there danger in trying to appear more personal when you're not actually any more personal? Is there a danger in that? Is there a dishonesty? And I think the most important question of all is, do such actions as $100,000 holographic technology does that take the focus off of Jesus and replace it with spectacle and show and maybe even a personality, celebrity? You see, all of that gets shoved aside in the name of reaching more people. As long as we're reaching more people, it doesn't matter what we do. It doesn't matter how we do it. The goal is to get as many people as possible in our churches so that they can hear the gospel and we can do anything that it takes to make that happen. Well, listen, this way of thinking has a name and the name is pragmatism. I want to introduce you to the idea of pragmatism. If you, if you've probably, you've, I'm sure you've heard the word before, but it's a helpful word because it, it summarizes something that I think is a huge problem today. Pragmatism officially is the name of a philosophy that emerged in America at the end of the 19th century. And you may be here today and you're going, I don't care about philosophy. I don't care about how all that happened. And, and I'm with you if you're there, that's fine. But let me give you the basics of it. Pragmatism teaches that actions and words shouldn't be evaluated based on standards of truth 
and standards of righteousness, but actions and words should be evaluated based on standards of usefulness. As long as something accomplishes the goal, as long as it is useful to get something that we want, a desired outcome, then it's okay to do. And so we're no longer thinking in terms of is it true or is it right or is it good, but we're only asking questions like, will it work? Will it get results? Pragmatism is often summarized in the formula, the end justifies the means. As long as we have a good goal, it does not matter the means we're using to accomplish the goal. It's valid. And church, I need you to hear me. Pragmatism is everywhere. It is the dominant American philosophy. Listen, even if you've never heard of it before, even if you've never studied it before, even if you've never sat in a philosophy class and heard a professor tell you about pragmatism, understand me, it is all over the place. And it has impacted the way you think about the world. It often dominates the way churches make decisions about ministry and missions. It often dominates the way individuals make personal decisions in their life. We are often driven, listen, more by questions of values about what we want to do, about the goal of comfort and convenience, than we are driven by the question of, is this convictionally true? Is this convictionally good? Is this something that Christ calls me to do? You see, all of that gets shoved aside when the end goal of pragmatism tells us to think in terms of, is this comfortable? Is this convenient? Is this something that is going to lead me to be more immediately happy? Is this something that is going to make me more money? Because there's a whole lot of things, church, that the Lord calls us to do that will not satisfactorily lead to your comfort and convenience. And right here in the Bible, in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5, later on in this very letter that we're looking at, Paul is going to instruct this church to take every thought captive in obedience to Christ. And so that's what I want to do this morning. I want to take the thought of pragmatism captive in obedience to Christ. We want to analyze whether this is a biblical way of thinking about the world or not. And Paul's going to help us do that in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. The first thing I want us to see in verse 1 is that we are called to tell the truth. Called to tell the truth. Look with me in verse 1. Paul writes, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. And we see the word, therefore, Paul has already written three chapters. Of course, he doesn't write them as chapters, but three chapters as we've divided them before he gets to chapter 4. Now, 2 Corinthians is a letter to a church with a lot of issues. You may be familiar with that. I've always heard it joked. It's kind of funny when you see a church called Corinth Baptist Church. It's a weird name. 
Corinth was, seems to be the church with the most problems in the New Testament, but I would argue that a lot of the problems that the Corinthians are facing are actually not that all, all that uncommon. They had divisions in this church. This was a church that was tolerating immorality, unrepentant sin. This was a church, so by the time we get to 2 Corinthians, which by the way is actually, we think, Paul's fourth letter, at least his fourth letter to this church. We only have two of them. By the time we get to this, there are new leaders who have crept into this city and into this church, and they are trying to discredit Paul, and they are trying to seize the power and the leadership of the church, and in order to do that, they are criticizing Paul. And so Paul has to defend his ministry in 2 Corinthians. And I need you to understand something. Paul's not defending his ministry out of, out of defense of his own reputation. That doesn't seem to matter much to Paul. So this isn't about Paul defending himself, but Paul understands that if his ministry gets critiqued, that the gospel is getting critiqued because his ministry is a ministry of the gospel. And so the reason why Paul defends himself is because Paul is defending the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a really good lesson for you and I as well. You know, our reputations at the end of the day shouldn't matter. What matters is that our names are tied to his name. So any defense that we give must ultimately be a defense of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the truth of the gospel. And so what kind of criticisms are they leveling at Paul? Well, we can see that pragmatism is at the heart of it. Paul calls them super apostles. It seems like they're coming in and they're looking at Paul and they're saying, look at how much Paul suffers. Look at his appearance. Look at how poor he is. Look at the outcomes of his life. Clearly, he is not a real apostle, because if he was a real apostle, he would be more impressive. He wouldn't suffer so much. He would have more money. He would have it all together. The end justifies the means. Because his end is not good, his means must not be good. And so they're trying to discredit him in that way. And so Paul is writing this letter to defend the gospel. Therefore, having this ministry. What ministry is he talking about? He is talking about the ministry that he's just described in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And in that chapter, Paul contrasts the ministry of Moses with the ministry of Jesus, the ministry of the law, which Paul says Moses brings the law, and the law comes, and though it is true, and though it is right, the, the outcome of the law is that it can only condemn us. And what does he mean by that? Well, you try to live by the Ten Commandments, church. You try to live by the whole law. You try in your strength to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind, with all of your strength. You try in your strength to love your neighbor as yourself. What is the outcome of the law? The law is righteous. The law comes from God. It reveals the nature of God. But the outcome of the ministry of the law is only condemnation and death. You and I cannot fulfill what the law requires. And so this ministry comes 
And Paul says the outcome is death, but then he contrasts that and he says, but there, church, listen, so glorious. What a reminder. There has been a new covenant. Our Savior has come and He has brought a different ministry. He has brought the ministry of the Gospel. We now come to God and we see our condemnation and we see that we are dead without God's grace. But Jesus comes and He fulfills the law on our behalf. We put our faith in Jesus and we receive the new covenant in His blood. Jesus died for our sins as a substitute. He made propitiation to bear the wrath of God for every sin that all of His people would ever commit. And the outcome of the ministry of Jesus, of this new covenant, is not death. It's life. It's not condemnation, but it's the Spirit. Paul says we have received this ministry by the mercy of God. This is perhaps one of the most inspiring aspects of Paul's ministry to me that he continually, perpetually is in awe of what God has done for him. It never gets old. Paul says, we've received this ministry by the mercy of God. He he never loses a sense of wonder over the mercy of God. It never becomes old to him. He never gets to a point in his life where he begins to believe the lie that there are things owed to him from God. He says, we've received this by the mercy of God. I don't look at this ministry as a task that I have to accomplish. Paul says, no, I look at this ministry as a privilege that God in his divine mercy has bestowed to me, entrusted to me. Paul says, it's not I have to do gospel ministry. Paul says, it is that I get to do gospel ministry. Church, what would it look like? What would God accomplish with a church full of people who think the way Paul thinks about the gospel? who truly believe every day that we don't deserve anything but wrath. And yet God continually shows us mercy through Jesus. By the mercy of God, we receive this. Don't you think that would change the way you serve in the nursery? Don't you think it would change the way that you you give to the offering? Don't you think it would change the way you think about missions, the way you think about VBS, the way you think about BFGs, about ministering to your neighbors? If, If you woke up every day in awe that God would save you, if you woke up every day truly believing, I don't deserve a thing, Everything I have is a gift. Every promise God has made is a gift that I don't deserve. Church, that's the perspective 
that we desperately need if we are going to pursue the ministry that God had given to Paul and the ministry that God, through Paul, has now given to the church. The apostles give this ministry to the church. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, and here's the ending, we do not lose heart. We don't lose heart. Now, I don't think this is the best translation. It's not wrong. But what Paul seems to be saying is, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not neglect our duty. We do not shrink back. We do not act cowardly. If you want some proof that this is a good translation, it's the same mentality that Paul uses in chapter 3, verse 12. So if you just look back at that verse. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Do you see that? And he says something similar in chapter 5, verse 6. He says, so we are always of good courage. This is what Paul is saying here. He's saying, the mercy of God compels me to courageously speak the truth no matter the consequences. Because God has saved me by mercy, because God has given me the gospel ministry by mercy, therefore, I will speak the truth. I am compelled to speak the truth. I will not neglect to speak the truth. I will boldly speak the truth no matter the consequences. I will not lose heart in the face of pressure. I will not shrink back when my enemies attack me and criticize me. I will speak the truth because I am not doing it for you. I'm not doing it to please any person. I am doing it because God has mercifully saved me and called me. That's what Paul's saying. Mercy fuels courage. And courage, church, is something that the church of the Lord Jesus Christ lacks and desperately needs. We need courage. We desperately need courage. We need courage in an age where courage is on short supply. I want to explain to you why I believe we need courage. I think that courage may be the thing lacking most in the church today. I think that we often live in fear. I think that we often parent in fear. I think that we often love the church out of fear. I think that we often care a lot about what everybody else thinks about us. And I believe that these impulses of fear prevent us from living faithfully in so many ways that God calls us to live faithfully. And I want you to think about this. Without courage, you can't be faithful in any other aspect of your life that God has called you to. Let me explain. C.S. Lewis Screw tape letters. It says, Courage isn't simply one of the virtues, but the form of every virtue at the testing point. Let me read it again. Courage isn't simply one of the virtues, but the form of every virtue at the testing point. What's he arguing? He's saying, If you don't have courage, you can't love. 
Because eventually, your love for someone else is going to put you in danger. Right? And so at some point, your love is going to be tested, and if you don't have courage, your love will fail. And you can apply that to every other aspect of the Christian life. Loyalty, faithfulness. Loyalty to Christ. Faithfulness to Christ. At some point, your loyalty to Jesus is going to cost you. There will come a day when publicly identifying with Jesus will put you in harm's way. And if you do not have mercy-fueled courage, your loyalty will fail. You and I can't do anything that Christ calls us to do without courage because everything Christ calls us to do has consequences, will cost us. Everything. But, but the point that Paul's making in, in, this, in this chapter He's not saying that courage is something that comes from within. You don't supply your own courage. It's not something you conjure up inside your heart and you say, well, I'm just going to be more courageous. No, he says, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. It is the mercy of God that supplies the courage that God calls us to have to do the things that God calls us to do, to speak the truth in a culture that is hostile to truth. How do we get courage? Well, we look to the one who endured the shame, the one who endured the cross. We look to Christ, our Savior. The greatest expression of sacrificial courage in the history of the world when the sinless Son of God died for His people. We follow Him. And listen, not only do we follow Him, but He has given His very Spirit to us. The very Spirit that compelled the apostles to speak boldly in the book of Acts. As they witnessed in hostile cultures, cultures similar to ours. That Spirit is our Spirit. That Spirit indwells us, God's people. If you belong to Jesus, you have His Spirit. And it is through His Spirit that we speak boldly, courageously, that we do not lose heart. We're called to speak the truth. But second, we're called to renounce all deceit. Look at what he says in verse 2. The contrast, therefore having this ministry of bold truth-telling by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. What's he talking about? Disgraceful, underhanded ways would be shameful practices that hide what's really happening. Tricks. Disgraceful, underhanded ways. Attempts to cover up the truth. Attempts to mask reality. Attempts to water down the truth so that it's a little bit more compelling. All kinds of 
21st century church practices would fall into the category that's being renounced in verse 2. Disgraceful, underhanded ways. I'll give you one real example. I'll be getting on a plane this afternoon for a four-hour plane ride to the West Coast, Anaheim, California, to attend the 2022 Southern Baptist Convention. Please pray for me. I was not planning to go. I didn't, I didn't want to go, actually. I, I have a million other things I'd rather do with my time this week. But last year at the Southern Baptist Convention, messengers gathered, and by a slim margin, the messengers there did something that was courageous and something that took guts and something that I believe was fueled by a love for the truth and the mercy of God. They demanded accountability. And the messengers at the Southern Baptist Convention, your messengers who represent your churches said, we are not going to allow rumors of sexual abuse cover-up to prevail. We will commission an independent investigation into our executive committee. So the, the, the central leading organization that oversees all the entities of the Southern Baptist Convention, we are going to have an outside, third-party, neutral source. We are going to fund them, and they are going to investigate our convention. And that investigation happened, and that report came out just about a month ago. And the report that came out was terrible. It was, it was worse than I thought. That there have been people in the Southern Baptist Convention for decades who have known about pastors and ministry leaders in positions of authority in churches in our convention who have been credibly accused of sexual abuse and have done nothing about it. In fact, there was a list of over 700 credibly accused sexual abusers. A list of over 700 that was kept in a secret file, hidden in some office in Nashville. And so we're going to meet this week, and the reason I'm going this week is because I want to represent our church because listen, if unrighteousness is not rooted out, if repentance is not sought, then we do not belong in such a partnership with unrighteousness. But as I was reading the report, I read a quote from one of the attorneys who had been paid by the Southern Baptist Convention, who was giving the Southern Baptist Convention counsel throughout these years, the one who actually kept the list of 700 accused abusers. In a quote from him, he says, attempts to uncover sexual abuse within the Southern Baptist Convention is a satanic scheme to distract us from evangelism. And that's the mentality. So the reason why we don't want to shine the spotlight on what we've done is because this is all just a distraction from Satan to keep us from the mission. The end justifies the means. Do you see it? 
we're trying to evangelize the world. So that justifies our cover-up of all of these horrific things that have happened through these years. Church, listen to me. You can't declare the truth of the gospel when you're covering up lies. You can't declare the righteousness of God when you're hiding sin. Do you see? The truth does not justify the means. We do not allow unrighteousness and lies to reign anywhere in our churches. We do not celebrate unrighteousness and lies. We do not cover up unrighteousness and lies. God is not honored. He is not glorified. The gospel that you preach will be discredited if you do not deal with these things. And so we have to deal with these things. We have to become a church, a convention, partnership. If there's any way to salvage anything from this mess, we have to do what's right. And we have to quit living by pragmatism lies. We have to renounce disgraceful, underhanded ways. Paul says next, we refuse to practice cunning. Now it's interesting that he uses this word cunning because he's going to use it again in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3. And he says there, but I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Cunning is what Satan used in the garden to lead Eve astray. Cunning is a readiness to say or do anything, even lie, in order to achieve the goal. So when Satan says to Eve, you're not going to die. God doesn't want you to have this because He doesn't want you to be like Him. That's cunning. Paul says we renounce that. We renounce disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning. We refuse to deceive. We refuse to lie. We refuse to speak words that sound one way, but they really mean something else. And then finally, or to tamper with God's Word. So we refuse two things, to practice cunning, and we refuse to tamper with God's Word. In other words, the Word of God is not a tool in our hands that we can manipulate to make it say anything we want it to say so that we can accomplish our goals. The Word of God stands outside of us and judges us. It speaks authoritatively to us. It is God's very words. We don't change it. We don't tamper with it. We don't cut and paste sections of it so that it fits a narrative that we want to tell. It judges us. Because when we hear God's words, we hear from God. He speaks to us. God is never honored by lies. We don't determine our actions based on perceived outcomes. Church, I promise you that if we wanted to, we could have so many people in here that we couldn't find enough chairs for them all. 
There's ways to get a crowd. <laughs> but, but that's not what we're called to do. We're called to preach the truth. We don't want to just get a crowd. We want the Holy Spirit to gather His church. That's not the same thing. We, we, we've got to stop allowing the rules of political discourse to shape the rules of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. You want to see pragmatism? Pay attention to Washington, D.C. Politicians will say whatever it takes to accomplish whatever end is in front of their face at any given moment. We don't do that. The same truth that liberates us binds us to it. The truth of the gospel liberates us, and then the truth of the gospel binds our consciences so that we must remain faithful and loyal to the truth of the gospel. And then finally, what I want us to see in the second half of verse 2, we are called to find validation elsewhere. All right, so here's the contrast. We have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. By the open statement of the truth. This is the contrast to disgraceful, underhanded ways. Instead of that, this is the open statement of the truth. There's no tricks. We will tell you up front what we're about. We are declaring the truth of the gospel. We are preaching the word of God in season and out of season, no matter if it's celebrated or hated. It's the open statement of the truth. Why, why would we rely on tricks, church, when we have a resurrected Savior and the Holy Spirit who raises dead bones to life? Why would you settle for tricks when we have the power of the Word of God in the Gospel? But notice what he says. By the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves. This is Paul, Paul's ministry. We would commend ourselves. He's using we in the collective sense. We would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God, the conscience of a human being. We are created in God's image, and God has created every human being with the capacity for moral judgment. Now sometimes those consciences get ignored for a long time. Sometimes those consciences get twisted and muted and battered and upside down. Sometimes those consciences may quit working. But we understand that God has created every single human being with a, a taste for what is right. A taste for what is true. And the truth will always register with upright consciences. Those whose consciences are healthy will hear the truth. And it will register with them. And it will be attractive to them. And those whose consciences are twisted they will reject the truth. They will seek to justify themselves instead of submitting to the truth. People who tolerate lies and live by lies and fail to expose lies 
are people who will not register when the truth is proclaimed. But Paul says that's not the point. By the open statement of the truth, we will commend ourselves to everyone's conscience, and this is really important, in the sight of God. Because this is where it all ends. In fact, church, I believe that this is the deciding factor and whether you're going to live according to the truth or whether you're going to live according to pragmatism or any other inferior philosophy. Either you live in the sight of man or you live in the sight of God because you cannot be faithful to God and live simultaneously for the approval of the world. Do you understand that? And and I want to imply that as broadly as possible. If you are living for the approval of other human beings, even if they're good human beings, even if they're brothers and sisters in Christ, you cannot be faithful to God. Eventually, those two things are going to come into conflict. And you are going to have to choose. Either I am going to live in the sight of God, or I am going to try to get pats on the back in the sight of man. You can't do both. Courageous truth-telling will lead you into conflict. Parents, courageous truth-telling will lead you into conflict with your children. Some of you don't like that. If you you hate conflict, you're going to have a really hard time being faithful to Christ. Faithful truth-telling, courageous truth-telling will lead you to lose friends. Courageous truth-telling means that family members will stop talking to you. Courageous truth-telling means that job opportunities will disappear. Courageous truth-telling means that people will leave your church. They'll leave your small group. They'll leave your equipped group. It's the way it's always been. Jesus lost followers as He went because He spoke the truth. And the Gospels document that so clearly. So how do we cope with that? Because nobody likes it, right? Nobody likes to make people mad. Nobody likes for people to reject them. Nobody likes to lose relationships. How do you deal with that? The only way you deal with it is you remind yourself of what Paul is reminding this church of. That we are here not to win friends and influence people. We are here so that by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. It is only in the sight of God that it ultimately matters. It is only His opinion that matters. Our commendation and our validation does not come from this earth. Our commendation and our validation comes from Christ. We want to get to the end and we want to hear our Father say, well done, my good and faithful servant. I named, Nikki and I named our youngest son after a missionary by the name of Adoniram Judson. I really wanted to name him Adoniram, and Nikki made me settle for Judson. 
And Adoniram would have been great because Sam couldn't say his R's at the beginning. And so I would have loved to have heard him tell people his name. You, just, you can do that in your head. It's really fun. But why? Why did I want to name my son Adoniram Judson? I have a picture of Adoniram Judson in my office. I remind myself of this man and his convictions. And I look at that picture, and the reason is because of this. Because Adoniram Judson was so convictionally compelled to go to the nations that many people say he was probably the first missionary sent out of America to the ends of the earth. He went, ended up going to a place called Burma, India, near India. And he gets on the ship. And, and first of all, it's conviction to go because everybody was telling him he's crazy. He, he wrote this letter to his potential wife, to, to, not to her, but to her father, asking for her hand in marriage. And he said, are you willing to part with her knowing that she is going to be subjected? And he began to list all of the dangers of the mission field. And, and he said, knowing that you may never see your daughter again, will you let her marry me? And he, then he hit Send. You type that out, and you're like, ah, never mind, I'm not going to do that. He hit send. And, she, and her father said yes. And she didn't come back. He didn't see her again. But Adoniram Justin was driven by conviction that God had called him to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And so he gets on a boat, and he begins to cross the ocean. And on the boat, he knows he's about to run into some Baptists. So he gets a Bible because he was a Congregationalist, which you don't know what that is. There's not many around today, but Congregationalists, one of the things they believe is that you baptize infants. He says, I've got to have a biblical defense when I meet these Baptists. And so he studies the Bible on the way there, and he decides that infant baptism is not biblical. Well, here's the problem. The people who were funding him and the people who sent him were congregationalists, and he knew that this belief meant that he was going to lose all the support of the churches, of the people who were going to pay for his trip, but he didn't care because he was driven by conviction. If it's true, it's true. It doesn't matter what the outcome is. It doesn't matter if I lose money. It doesn't matter if I lose friends. It doesn't matter if they cut me off. If I believe the Bible teaches this, then I am going to follow what the Bible teaches. You see, that's the difference between pragmatism and conviction. Now listen, church, every one of us is going to be led in one of two ways. You are either going to be a person who walks around cowering to the people in your life because you're constantly thinking about results and outcomes and you're constantly calculating your own comfort and convenience and you are going to be a pragmatist. Or, or you are going to be a person who is driven by conviction and you are going to do what is right and you are going to stand for what is true regardless of the outcome. You can't be both. We have a God who has revealed Himself to us. And I need you to understand, we do not live in a cultural context that celebrates truth and righteousness. You know that, don't you? This month's Pride Month. And there's a lot of stands being taken in Pride Month. 
I read an article this week about the Tampa Bay Rays baseball team. Their organization demanded that all the players wear pride hats, and four pitchers on that team said, we're not going to do it. They said, it's not that we don't, don't love homosexual people. It's not that we don't love the people who make choices different than us, but we can't celebrate this lifestyle because we're Christians. Our consciences are bound by the gospel. We stand for truth, even if truth gets us in trouble. We stand for righteousness, even if it distracts from goals that we think are proper. When the pressure comes, church, listen, pragmatism will not sustain you. The gospel will. Live in the sight of God, not in the sight of man. Tell the truth, no matter the cost. Let's pray together.